from KQED. Happy New Year. I'm Sandhya Dirks, and you're listening to Cued Up. This new year, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to play you an episode of a podcast we love. The podcast is called Out There. This episode was produced by a KQED producer, Bianca Taylor. Bianca has this amazing story about how the thing we love, the thing we think is our strength, can actually be a crutch. It's a story about letting go and about how sometimes in the act of letting go, we can actually find our real strength. Here's Bianca Taylor. For my friend Matt, riding a bike wasn't just a hobby, it was his therapy. Since middle school, he had felt anxious and inadequate. There was a lot of pressure to excel in school, and when his parents got divorced, he felt extra responsibility to hold it all together. It was like being in a constant pressure cooker, comparing himself to his peers and always feeling like he came up short. But there was one thing that helped relieve that stress. Biking. When he was riding, his anxiety and self-doubt melted away, and he felt free. Completely, simply free. Matt loved that feeling, so he rode as much as he could. By the time he was a freshman at UC Santa Cruz, he was riding his bike every single day. It was like a drug for him, exactly what he needed to escape from his problems. But like a drug, Matt started to become dependent on cycling. If he missed a day, he felt unsettled. That might not seem so bad. After all, what's wrong with craving a bike ride? But as it turns out, this dependence, which seemed like such a healthy coping mechanism, would come back to haunt him later. But let's go back to the beginning. Matt's serious cycling career started when he went to college. He decided he wanted to go on longer rides, so he bought a pair of spandex bike shorts and set out one morning with the goal of spending all day on his bike. That summer, it was like most Sacramento summers, it was 105 degrees or something. And so I went out on a bike ride on the bike trail, and I remember getting back at the end and laying on the floor and barely being able to breathe. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. I think I just rode 40 miles and it's like the longest thing I've ever done. And I'm just, I'm dehydrated and my butt hurts and I just don't know. And then I didn't die and I recovered and I went back out and I kept going. And then, I don't know, there's just nothing that could stop me. I just, that's what I was thinking about. That's how I wanted to be spending my time I just felt really alive when I was doing it. Matt went on longer and longer rides, and eventually he started to wonder what it would be like if he didn't have to turn around at the end of the day, if he could just keep going. At the bike shop, he had heard people talk about something called bike touring, and he was intrigued. He did some research and found that it was basically like camping, but with your bike. The idea is that you ride with all of your supplies and equipment with you so that you don't have to turn around at the end of the day. You just set up camp and then wake up the next morning and keep on biking. It sounded perfect. And I decided to go from Santa Cruz to San Diego. And I 
talked to a couple friends that I didn't really know. I was just like, hey, would you guys want to go on a bike tour together? It's like seven days down the coast. And they're all like, yeah, I've never done that before. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and it was such, it was so over the top. We decided to go like 100 miles a day. We're like, we're, we're kind of on a time crunch, but it's 100 miles and so we'll be fine, right? We're, we're strong, guys. No, we had no idea what we were doing. It was so painful and so long. Even so, he was hooked. The next summer, he did an even longer bike tour from Santa Cruz to Portland, Oregon. It was 800 miles, which by most standards is a really long bike ride. But for Matt, it wasn't enough. He was already dreaming about something bigger. I was like, well, the next natural thing to do is cross the country, right? That's what everybody does. It's like the bike touring pilgrimage. So I started looking into it. I was like, okay, let's look at some routes. I knew that I wanted to leave from my front door. I didn't want to take a train to the starting point. I just wanted to like lock my door and disappear for a few months. And again, I went to some of those same friends and I said, hey, you want to go on a big one? And we all kind of had this moment, this like collective moment where we're like, oh my gosh, 5,000 miles across the country, two and a half months. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Matt was about to graduate college, and he couldn't imagine a better way to spend the summer after school than riding his bike for two and a half months. For me, it kind of represented, okay, I'm finishing this major chapter in life with a vast unknown on the other side. And also there's this, there's this physical part of me too that every time I've pushed a threshold into unknown, where I've gone from, okay, I've never done more than 80 miles. Well, let's see what 100 miles feels like. Okay, I've done 100 miles. Let's see what 125 looks like. I kind of, I kept meeting that envelope and then looking beyond. I was anticipating just the most open-ended and alive adventure. Matt and his four friends started out the trip in Portland, Oregon on a warm day in June. The first couple of weeks were wonderful, like really wonderful. I like could barely sleep the first few weeks. I would like lay in my tent and I was so excited about the next day that I would just, and then it was this crazy, I had so much energy and I could not wait to get up and keep going. They were riding nearly 100 miles each day through all types of terrain and heat. For most of us, that probably sounds awful, but for them, it was great. They were thriving. We all felt like superheroes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've never, I've never had an experience that's been quite that totally alive. This was the kind of feeling he'd been hoping for on this trip. It was going exactly how he had imagined. And even the parts that weren't so great were still pretty good. So one of the days that we thought was going to be excellent that turned out at the end not to be so great was we had a, we were in Idaho at this point. As you're approaching the Rocky Mountains from the west side and you're going through Idaho, there's a essentially a 70 mile gentle gradient of a climb that goes up and over Lolo Pass just on the other side. There's a place called Lolo Springs, which apparently is a hot springs. 
they spent the whole day fantasizing about those hot springs. We got up in the morning. We're like, okay, let's get up and over that mountain and we'll go to the hot springs and we'll be drinking beer and soaking our legs and it'll be fantastic. And we pass a couple of small parks that say they're hot springs on the way. We're like, oh, well, those ones probably aren't that good. Lolo Hot Springs is the really good one. So they kept pushing up this 70-mile mountain pass. Finally, at the end of the day, they got to the bottom. But instead of arriving at an idyllic oasis, all they saw was an RV park, a restaurant, and a swimming pool with a fence around it. And we kind of look around and we're like, okay, this is apparently Lolo Hot Springs. Where's the hot springs? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we, we go over to the swimming pool and they said, yeah, this is the hot springs. It's in a plastered pool that's also chlorinated and it's $10 to get in. And it was like it was like a motel swimming pool that happened to have a little bit of hot spring water coming in. It was like the biggest letdown maybe ever. But even this kind of thing didn't get them down for very long. They woke up the next morning ready to cross into the town of Missoula. For those of us who don't ride our bikes 100 miles a day for fun, Missoula is a sort of mecca for touring cyclists. It marks a rough halfway point between the east and west coasts, but it's also the headquarters of Adventure Cycling, an organization famous for promoting bike touring. So we go into the headquarters and it feels like, it feels like we're celebrities. They were thrilled to have us. They were like, you get your free ice cream over there. We'll give you a tour of the whole facility. We're going to snap your Polaroid and put you on the wall of tourers, which is this phenomenal piece of work. It's like this giant wall inside their office where Polaroids have been taken for the last 30 years of people passing through. And so we were all full, like our spirits were just like brimming over. We're like, this is so incredible. At this point, they'd been on the road for a month. They had ridden 2,000 miles. That's a lot of riding. We were bronzed and trim and really strong and eating 5,000 calories a day, and that was barely enough to cover it. So we were, I mean, we were, we were glowing. Like, I have a picture of us in front of, of the headquarters, and we're all just, yeah, I mean, we look like we're on the top of the world. That's how we felt. Matt left the Adventure Cycling headquarters feeling better than he'd ever felt before. What he didn't know was that his world was about to get shattered. We're on, I think, Highway 4, and it's a really wide two-lane highway. And we're all lined up, and we're feeling, we're just, like, feeling great. And we're all cruising. It's a beautiful day. Sun's out. It's warm. I mean, it just... It really couldn't have been a better day. As they rode, they came to an intersection on the highway. It was nothing out of the ordinary. They had crossed dozens of highways on this trip. But this time, as Matt crossed the road, something terrible happened. For a a second, I I was like, there's something large right here. And the next thing I knew... (laughs) It was the loudest sound I've ever heard in my entire life. It was just, it was like, it was like being next to, it was like being in a metal chamber with metals, like metal, like clamoring around my ears. And I just, I just hear a, 
like pop. The next thing I saw was the side of the road and I was laying on my side in the fetal position in the highway. And I didn't see anything except for the road. I didn't have, like, I didn't see my bike. I didn't see any of my gear. I was just suddenly on the ground. And it seemed really quiet, actually. Yeah, it was, it was really quiet. Matt had been hit by a van that was going 70 miles an hour, but he didn't know that yet. He had no idea what was happening. And then my friends show up. And I think that they probably thought that I had died because I, as I, as the story was told to me, I flew through the air, like somersaulted through the air, landed on the ground. My bike exploded into four or five pieces and was shot down the road a hundred feet. My shoes flew off and I was just laying still on the highway. So I think that for my friends for a moment, they probably feared the worst. There was a woman who was driving in the opposite lane who saw the whole thing happen. And maybe in, in her defense, she really thought that she was helping my situation, but she opens with, I'm like, I've seen so many of these accidents happen on these highways. You're so lucky. If you end up only losing your leg, consider yourself so lucky. And at that point, I started to kind of like, okay, all right, now it's feeling really real. Um, I might lose my leg. And then and then my brain went off and I was like, oh my gosh, scenario, like what? how's life as an amputee? Like, how, what does that look like? And just going nuts. At this point, the only thing holding Matt's foot onto his leg was his skin and Achilles tendon. EMTs arrived on the scene and took him by helicopter to St. Patrick's Hospital, where he underwent surgery on his leg a few hours later. Matt's injury was really bad. The van had clipped his back tire, and he had somersaulted onto the highway and snapped his shin bone and the bone behind it cleanly in half. It was a pretty sobering wake up. I was in a hospital gown, in a bed, looking at a whiteboard that had a drawing of my leg and the metal plate and all the screws that were in it and looking at my leg in a big cast and just feeling like, oh yeah, okay, that wasn't a dream. This is where I'm at. Ryland, who I think I, it was my best friend out of all of them. He, you know, came to my bedside and he's like, he had that look in his face like, it's done. Like I'm done. I'm not going to keep going. And I, and I saw him about to say that. And I said, don't like, don't say that. Don't say what you're about to say. Don't tell me that you're going to stop here. And, and he, he kind of just sighed. He's like, well, I mean, you put this whole thing together. You know, it's like, you're the one that instigated a lot of it. And I think that you being out is me being out. Matt and Ryland took a 30-hour train ride back from Montana to Matt's mom's house in Sacramento, California. Ryland stayed for a few days, and then he he packed his bike up, and he rode from Sacramento back to Santa Cruz to keep going with his life. And then I stayed there, and it's just me and my mom for, you know, for most of that time.
As I mentioned in the beginning, Matt is actually a really close friend of mine. So when he got home that summer, I went to visit him with a few friends. We brought over ice cream and hung out on the couch. He told us the story of what had happened, and we were so relieved that he hadn't died. We were happy to see him recovering, and he was clearly glad that we had come to see him. But then we left. We didn't really understand how difficult this whole situation was for him. It was really hard. It was, it was pretty heartbreaking. I, I mean, not only was my trip over, like, you know, I, I had foreseen myself, like, landing in Maine, you know, grizzled and three months into a bike tour and just having achieved this great thing with my friends. And I, I, I had a lot of attachment to that end goal ultimately. I mean, it is so much about the journey, but I was also very excited about achieving that. And so when I landed back in Sacramento in July and it was sweltering Sacramento heat and I was in a cast and I was on my mom's couch, I felt, I just kind of felt like I had lost, like in a really big way. After surgery, the doctor told him that he had to keep weight off his leg for at least three months to let the bones heal back together. For Matt, this was the first time in seven years that he'd taken more than one week off of the bike. For a lot of us, not biking for one week is not a big deal. Maybe you don't even own a bike. But think about that one thing that, for you, always manages to take away your stress. You can't picture your day without it. Now imagine yourself in Matt's position. That thing that you do every day, you can't do it at all for at least three months, and you don't really know if you'll ever be able to do it again. It's just gone. I watched really rapidly my body go from this, I, I mean, I was like in probably the best shape of my life, and then I I watched in those first few weeks my, my left leg just totally atrophy. Like my muscles disappeared. I lost a ton of weight. I just became like a very thin, muscleless couch potato. Matt was spending all day sitting on the couch, staring at the ceiling. He had the same routine every day. He didn't have anything to set an alarm for, so he would wake up whenever. He would get out of bed with his crutches and hobble to the bathroom. And then he would make his way to the couch. For the first few weeks, he was in so much pain that it actually felt good to lie on the couch all day. But when the pain faded and he began to regain his energy, he felt completely trapped in this air-conditioned room with his leg up, unable to move. I had all these thoughts and scenarios where I was like, I'm never going to ride my bike again. I was just I was pissed and sad and frustrated, and I just kept wanting to go back and like not cross the road. and kept re like rethinking like well what if you know what if we had not gone to Lolo Springs that day what if we had stopped or what if you know like I went through every scenario like how did I get to that spot at that moment and have that car hit me and I didn't have a good answer it was during these endless days stuck on the couch that Matt realized just how much he had relied on bicycling as a way to cope with his emotions it was how he dealt with his stress Whenever something problematic was going on in his life, biking was how he got his mind off it. But now, 
now, without this outlet of physical exertion, without being able to just hop on a bike and escape, Matt was flooded with all of the feelings he had been trying to distance himself from for so many years. There was a period of like maybe a week or two where I just, I just kept going deeper into sorrow and just saying like my life has, is now like so fundamentally changed and I don't know if I'll ever come back. I don't know what my life is going to be like now. My mind was running circuits except I didn't have any way to help channel the stuff that I didn't want floating around there. Things were feeling pretty hopeless at this point for Matt. And I had a lot of moments of just kind of like, fuck, my whole life is basically ruined right now. And that's that was the overwhelming emotion that I had was just, how can I recover from this? How will I come back? And also, am I crazy? And what's wrong with me? And like, why can't I just, why can't I just have a broken leg? And why can't that be fine? And why can't I just enjoy this moment? And I, you know, my mind just started going, in overdrive. It was at this point, as Matt sat there day after day, trapped on the couch with his feelings, that something started to shift. It was a subtle shift at first, but eventually it would lead him to figure out how to fix his problems rather than run from them. It all began with a book. Matt was reading a lot these days. It was one of the only things he could do. And this one book in particular really spoke to him. It was called Mountain Time by Ken Norris. In the book, Norris argues that time isn't something to be raced against, but a gift to be treasured. Matt instantly connected with the struggle of racing against or away from something. And reading about how another active outdoorsy person embraced slowing down, made Matt think about his own situation in a new light. I realized at a point that there was no escape and that I just, the only way that I was going to do this was not running away and looking over my shoulder, but just turning around and be like, okay, let's do this. As opposed to trying to run away from it, I just was like, all right, well, I guess this is who I am. So I might as well just put my arm around it and carry it around. (laughs) And so I got to a point where it just became familiar. All of a sudden I was able to, not gracefully and not well, and I didn't even welcome it necessarily, but I just was with my all of that stuff. I was with my stress, I was with my frustration, and I was with my insecurity and like, how am I gonna, what does life look like now? In the scheme of things, Matt ended up being really lucky. After three months, he got off the couch and slowly started to walk again. He went to physical therapy and training, and now, several years later, he's back on his bike and his leg is stronger than ever. Physically, Matt is back to where he was before the accident. But it's on the mental side of things that Matt was really lucky. It might seem counterintuitive, but Instead of trying to forget about his accident or looking back on it with anger and regret, Matt is grateful for it. In fact, he thinks of it as something that saved his life. I think that if I ha- if it hadn't been forced upon me in the form of a car accident, I think I would still be moving through life rapidly and just 
pursuing and chasing adventure and trying to push my, my thresholds. When I stopped and all of that stuff, all of everything caught up with me, I realized there was just a lot more to myself that I had to come to terms with and get to know. Matt had always thought that biking was a healthy way for him to manage his stress, but in reality, it was keeping him from dealing with the real issues that he was grappling with. It was kind of like a painkiller, masking his symptoms without fixing the underlying problems. Once the painkiller was taken away from him, Matt was forced to find a real cure. He was forced to confront the anxiety and self-doubt and address the problems head on. You know, for better or for worse, you have all these parts of yourself that you got to just learn to love. Like all the scary parts, all the emotional parts, all the weird insecurities, all the things that probably on a given day you're just trying to sequester and keep, you know, behind the facade of like, I'm cool and I'm gifted and I'm interested and I'm doing all this amazing work. But yeah, like we're all like inside, we have all kinds of stuff like floating around at any moment. And my way of coping with that was just to get out ahead and get in front of it and so to not have to deal with it. Now I'm able to be kind to myself and love myself and just say, hey, you're having a hard time or hey, you're you're stressed and you're having, things don't feel very easy right now. And I can be with that emotion and it's okay. And in a lot of ways, I think now I've show, I've become a more, I've just become like a more authentic version of myself. This July, it'll be five years since Matt's accident. As I mentioned, he's back on his bike. Only now, he rides for fun, not to run from his problems. He's thought about going back to Missoula, but says he doesn't feel like he needs to finish the tour he started five summers ago. He's in a different place in his life now. Which isn't to say he's over bicycling completely. I still love it. Um, I, I bike every day, and I have since completed a couple of really big bike tours. I don't have any residual trauma. I just still love it. I think I'll do it for the rest of my life. You know, I wouldn't recommend anybody to go out and get hit by a car, but pausing and slowing down was the most unexpected and great things that I could have ever imagined. Sometimes I'm a little disheveled and sometimes like things are a little a little off and I'm not rocking everything and I'm not like, you know, summiting a huge mountaintop or completing a arduous journey and and that's okay. It's okay to just be sometimes. Thanks to producer Bianca Taylor for bringing us Matt's story. And thanks to Out There Podcast and host Willow Belden. Out There is a podcast that's about more than just the outdoors. It's about the way we enter into them and find something there, inspiration, and sometimes healing. You can check out more episodes at outtherepodcast.com. You're listening to Cued Up. I'm Sandhya Dirks. Happy New Year. 
Queued Up senior editor is Julia McAvoy. Our executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. Thanks for listening.